Hello again, and welcome to Perspectives, the podcast from the Public Health Review. I'm Amanda, one of your podcast editors. Today, we're discussing obesity research and weight stigma. We know this can be a complicated and emotionally difficult subject, so please take care of yourself. If listening to a conversation about these things is not going to be great for your mental health on this particular day, feel free to come back another time. We will be here. This topic was suggested by one of the Public Health Review board members, Diane. If you listened to our last episode, you heard from Diane. She's a Master's of Public Health student concentrating in public health administration and policy, and she is also one of the Public Health Review copy editors. My co-editor, Mariah, spoke to her about why she wanted us to do an episode about this topic. The reason we have Diane with us today is because I guess we kind of want to know what interests you about this topic or why did you submit this to have this as an episode? Yeah, so I think my interest in this topic probably subconsciously goes back to growing up as a young girl in the early 2000s where, you know, the the imaging in pretty much all of society culturally was that there was more worth in, in being thin and being, you know, pretty whatever that means in a certain attractiveness. And I saw how that cultural imperative really impacted the people I grew up with, the other girls that were my friends, the older women in my life. And while society, like I, I'm hopeful that things are improved from that time, there's still a lot of a lot of negative impact that occur around people's biases towards the way other people's bodies look. So yeah, I, I am interested in the topic and I, I've been, I'm about to start my second year of my degree Degree here at the University of Minnesota, and I have met so many wonderful classmates, peers, faculty members at the at the School of Public Health, and you know that are very smart and and wonderful people. And I also think that at the same time, there's this reality where public health is not where it, it needs to be on how we treat people that are that are fat or in a larger body. And there's a lot of whether whether it's like you know health promotion campaigns that have a lot of paternalism to them. Or just what research is being done to to study the effects of the biases and the discrimination that people receive based on their size. I, I think that there's a lot more that that needs to be done. And I have spent most of this this first year of my my program trying to just sort of informally talk to people and at the school try to learn about people's attitudes on the topic and what research is being done and. I just I wanted to see see more conversation about about these issues and this was a potential opportunity here with the the podcast so I'm I'm really grateful that you chose the the topic to be selected. I definitely think as a woman growing up in this era I agree with you it's it's always a little daunting when you when you're talking about body size or even like your eating habits your nutrition or your exercise habits so I really appreciated when you submitted this topic just because I felt like not, it's not just isolated. Everyone can appeal to it, whether you are, you know, underweight or overweight or you maintain your weight. I think we all have something that we think could be better about our self-image. 
was there anything else you wanted to make sure that we discussed or noted for our listeners today? Um, I think, I guess I would just say thank you for, for choosing the topic. And I just really encourage all of our listeners to come into the episode with an open mind to kind of check yourself if you have been falling into more of the the camp in which uh, even subconsciously, if you're thinking negatively about people that are overweight or that that you have these notions that were very ingrained in our society and just were the dominant narrative and have been the dominant narrative in healthcare settings and in public health for for a very long time just to take yourself you know have a have a moment to try to listen to the the people I'll be speaking today with you know open open mind to their experiences and to recognize as well that the the lived experience of being someone that has grown up in in the times that people have and have been in a larger body for their life um, that those hold real weight and that they are um, they're an expert in their in their experience and that that should be something that as public health researchers listen to and, and really take seriously so I just ask for everyone listen and and hopefully uh, we'll, we'll all have a lot to learn thanks for your time we're gonna go ahead and hand it off to Amanda who will introduce our next speaker thank you Thank you. Before we go into the interviews for this episode, I wanted to clarify one of the specific items we talk about, the BMI or body mass index. This wasn't fully defined during our interviews, so I thought I would do it now. The BMI is calculated by dividing a person's weight by the square of their height. There's also a child and teen BMI that adjusts for age and provides a BMI for age percentile ranking based on growth charts. So with that bit of background information, we can go into the interviews. Claire, I was lucky enough to get to know you in our community-based participatory research class, but for everyone else, can you just introduce yourself? Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Claire. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm finishing up my master's in public health at the U right now. Um, I study community health promotion with a specific focus in um, fat activism and research within the fat community, specifically related to, well, actually, I would say across all realms, but with a more focus in um, healthcare and weight neutral approaches to healthcare. I identify as fat and I have been dealing my whole life with trying to kind of just like put together all of these things. Like, why am I not being treated the same as like my sister, for example, who is skinny or like all these other people in my life? And I don't seem to be like, I feel like I have the shame, like I don't know what's going on. And I was trying to process all of that. And when I moved to Minnesota for this master's program, I was in Alabama before doing my undergrad, but I'm originally from Philadelphia. I started to get exposed to um, the fat acceptance movement and fat activism. And I was like, oh, like, this is a real thing. I'm not just, I'm not just making this up. Like fat discrimination is a huge deal and it affects so many people. Um, And so I kind of just dove right in um, to that and became so passionate about it. And I've been really lucky. There are a ton of great organizations, fat activists, like community leaders in the cities like the Radical Health Alliance, who their co-founder or their CEO is Annie Jansen, and even um, 
Kat, who is owner of Cake Plus Size Resale in South Minneapolis. There's just so many cool people in this town that are doing really great work. And they have had a great impact on how I've been able to learn and grow in myself, but then also transfer that into my research and my passions for what I want to do, like in my career and not even in my career, just like in my life as a person. (laughs) So yeah, I have a couple of different, I guess, like perspectives and like stakes in this field, like as being a fat person myself, as being a student or kind of not being a student anymore (laughs) um, and more of a researcher, but then also considering myself an activist. So there's a lot of different, I feel like I get to see a lot of different viewpoints and that has really helped me to kind of shape and figure out what the landscape is and what's going on. Yeah, that is definitely why I wanted to talk to you because I think you do have such an interesting perspective, like kind of being in the middle of everything. And I wanted to take a minute to talk about terminology because I was definitely raised here in the Midwest a a while ago, longer ago than you were raised (laughs) to think um, that fat was like a bad word to call someone. Um, and I'm sure that this could be a much longer conversation. Um, but would you mind just briefly talking about the terms that are used when we talk about weight and which ones are kind of generally used or preferred in different contexts? Absolutely. Yeah. Fat is a really hard word because kind of like you said, it's fat and thin specifically are such emotionally charged and like connotation wise, they have such strong force. And that is something that I'm really passionate about, about kind of like eliminating that force and just having neutral words. Like fat is just a body descriptor. It's not a word linked with morals, with decisions, anything like that. And so a lot of people that are in the fat activist movement, it's kind of a movement of reclaiming the word and being like, this is not a bad word. This is literally just a body descriptor. (laughs) And it should have the same connotation as thin because everything should be neutral. However, I will say a lot of people still are not comfortable using that word and that makes total sense. Um, And so there's a lot of ways that people can identify themselves. And so I kind of go along the line of just asking people what they prefer. And so a lot of people use things like plus size or living in a larger body, um, even things like thick or curvy. And really it's just whatever people are comfortable with. I would say the words to avoid are words like overweight and obese especially now that obesity is defined as such a like chronic disease. Obese is not an okay term to use when you're talking about someone's body size, because you don't know if somebody has an illness or their condition of their health. So I would really avoid using words like that. And especially because they are rooted in this BMI. Do you know the um, like story of, or like history of the BMI? I do somewhat, but you should tell us anyway. Okay. So there was a mathematician named Adolf Quetelet from, I believe it was the 1800s. Um, and he decided that he wanted to make a attractiveness scale <laughs> for people's body sizes and heights. And so he made this formula with only white European men based on attractiveness alone <laughs> um, of height and weight. Um, and this was at the time, a kind of like a a eugenicist move to try and create differences and superiority within races. However, this is a really easy, easily measured construct. And so when things like health policy, things like insurance, um, things like even like going to the doctors, it's such an easy measurement to repeat and find some sort of conclusion off of that it became wrapped up in equating your weight to your health. 
things like overweight is just like overweight, overweight to what compares into this normal random number that was created. And it's interesting because out of Quedla, even in his research, it's noted that this wasn't a health measure. <laughs> so it was purely like a eugenicist move to try and separate races. So things like, yeah, obese and overweight are not valid terms that I like to use. Another note also that I wanted to add um, was the difference between fat phobia and anti-fatness. Um, and this is something that I actually just learned and I'm working with now. So NAFTA or NAFA, which is the National National Association for Fat Acceptance, just released kind of like a statement about why they choose to use anti-fatness as opposed to fat phobia. And I really liked it. And I'm trying to include that in my practice now too. And basically what they said is anti-fatness focuses on like the negative attitudes and discrimination and poor treatment of fat people as opposed to fat phobia which kind of like implies that poor treatment is a result of phobia or fear and not rooted in like the fact that people just have negative attitudes and discriminate people for that and I really love that and I use fat phobia all the time um, in a lot of my work and so I'm even trying now to consciously practice that and use anti-fatness as opposed to fat phobia. That is really interesting. I hadn't heard that either. And now that I hear it, it, that makes a lot of sense. This is why it's always good to talk about terminology because things are always kind of changing and how we use the language. Um, there's just, it's always fluid. So that's really interesting. I also wanted to touch on the the phrase health at every size, because that's when I think we hear too. Absolutely. Yeah. So health at every size is actually a set of principles and also kind of a curriculum made by ASTA, which is the Association for Size, Diversity, and Health. And it was a set of principles created by them that basically was trying to say that health should be a research or a capacity to all, regardless of health condition or ability level, not as an outcome or an objective of living, which a lot of times when we think health, we think like, oh, skinny, working out 10 times a week, like doing all these things and being productive all the time and having great mental health and all these things. Um, and basically what they said is that health is more of like a holistic continuum that varies with time and circumstance for each individual. And a lot of this is rooted in the long history of weight bias that exists in healthcare specifically, and that everyone kind of has their own version of health, no matter their body size, no matter their mental health, no matter their physical ability. And it looks different on everyone, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't have access to care. So it's basically a principle of everyone should have access to care and to be able to reach their objective for health and to live with health as a resource to help them be satisfied with their life, as opposed to trying to like reach and do things and change things in your life to try and reach this like holy grail of health. And a lot of people too have taken that to mean that weight is not indicative of health, which is true, and that you can be healthy and still live in different body sizes, even if that is a larger body size. That's a really interesting reframing. I think I wasn't even familiar with that that it was a, sense, a set of principles, right? That idea of like health as a resource rather than like health as a goal that like only some people can kind of attain. Yeah. That's, that's a much different way to look at it. I like that. Yeah, they have a really great set of resources um, and they do a lot. ASDA is a 
really, really great organization that does a lot of research in this field and is sort of like a, it's not a database, but it has the capacity to like hold all these different resources. And they focus a lot on thin centric healthcare. It's really interesting. I was, I was reading up on it today in like preparation to chat a little bit more and they had come out with new statistics and I just, I was just going to read this because I copied it down because it was really interesting. So they said that one study showed that fat women who intentionally lost at least 15% of their body weight were over two times higher risk of death compared to fat women who remained weight stable. And another study found that risk of dying from cardiovascular disease was higher in people who lost weight and that risk increased with more weight loss. So I thought that was really interesting. And it was kind of showing that like, then centric healthcare is really harmful to people, not only in like mental health effects, like the real like adverse effects that come from weight bias, like weight bias can cause hypertension. It can cause anxiety, depression, all of these things. And on top of that, it can also cause more physical, like detrimental (laughs) effects to your health, as opposed to just trying to achieve, not even achieve health, but like use health to live a satisfied life. So we've kind of covered a lot, actually, but I'm wondering if you could give us a kind of a summary of how you see the landscape of obesity and weight loss research right now. I know it's a big question. There's a lot going on in this area, but what would you say are the most important things for someone to understand if they're just starting to learn about this area of research and its impact on patients and providers? Yeah. So if we backtrack a little bit, I think it's important to note on like the landscape of obesity and weight loss research right now. Historically, weight stigma has been rooted in the fact that fatness is a means of someone's personal behaviors and actions and or like morals and things like that. And a lot of anti-fatness still stems from that today. But in a lot of current research, there are things going on now that are saying that obesity is actually a cause of social determinants of health and not individual behaviors. And I use obesity there because one, to be consistent with the research and two, because there's a difference in my opinion between fatness and obesity. Obesity is considered a disease, which there's a lot of unraveling to do even within that. (laughs) Um, Whereas fatness is just a body descriptor, but basically they're, Social determinants of health, such as like your environment, the food you have access to, the amount of like walkable things in your neighborhood, or even just like the amount of safety you feel in your environment, everything kind of adds up into your weight and it can be um, related. And so there's kind of this new wave going on that fatness is not someone's personal behaviors. It is a means of your environment and social determinants of health, which is helpful in in battling that stigma that fatness is your own personal behavior. However, it also is just showing another reason that like fatness can't just be accepted. Like there has to be a reason for it. And so all of that to say, I think it's really important to take time and like think about what you know about fatness and like how you perceive it. And kind of just, I don't know, it's really difficult because it's kind of the same as like learning like anti-blackness and learning like about anti-queerness and all these things that people are considered like 
different or things like that. There's so much unlearning that has to be done. And so I think it's really important to just like be open-minded and know that it's not necessarily fat people's responsibility to educate you on this. You have to have your own responsibility to your own learning, if that makes sense. But yeah, I would say the most important things to know are one, that BMI is outdated, racist, and not an indicator of health. I feel like that's really important to know as someone who's kind of just coming into this and learning. And I would also say, I think another important thing is just to know that like fat people are healthy. There are plenty of fat people that are healthy. And just like knowing that and acknowledging that and like ruminating on that (laughs) is really important. Yeah. Do you see a relationship between the kind of obesity and weight loss research area and diet culture? Absolutely. Yeah. I would say especially now more than ever with um, semaglutide, which is um, Ozempic or Wegovy, all over the headlines, everywhere in your face. Um, This is a huge development in both obesity and weight loss research and diet culture because I mean, throughout history, if you look at the trends and the different medications and the different fad diets and all these things, there's always something that's trying to be like a holy grail to quick accessible weight loss. And this medication is one of the first medications that is actually like doing that wide stream and not causing horrible side effects and horrible deaths or anything like that. And that has an extreme, extreme effect on diet culture for sure. I mean, I see all the time, like anytime I'll go on TikTok, it will be another like teenager or like someone in their 20s being like, this is my week two on Ozempic. And people are saying, oh my gosh, like, I'm so jealous that you get to have that, like all these things. And so I could actually talk about semaglutide forever. I'm doing actually a, I just finished a research proposal um, for a qualitative study to talk to people who have stopped taking um, semaglutide and talk about their experiences post Um, in regard to their mental health, because there are so many horrible experiences that people are going through with this medication. (laughs) There's this whole landscape right now with this medication is that it's creating really easily accessible weight loss. And it is said with this, that obesity is now going to be considered a chronic health condition and be treated as such. And the examples used to compare that are, oh, well, if you have high blood pressure, you would take your blood pressure medication for life this is the same thing, completely different, not the same, (laughs) and is giving people another excuse to look at someone's appearance and assume their health based on solely their appearance. And so it's really harmful. Actually, this is really a huge thing that I'm looking at right now as like the harm that this is causing to the fat community. And what I have surmised is that (laughs) this is kind of just like covert oppression and discrimination of the fat community disguised as a medical revelation because there's this huge like all of this is mostly under the intention to like eradicate fatness and that's really harmful and scary as like a fat individual that I know that I do the things that I need to do to be healthy and I don't need to be taking this medication but it's being forced on me from all sorts of angles you know but on top of that people are having like horrible GI issues they're feeling disgusted by food. They are like dealing with that. And it is also super high cost out of pocket. Insurance doesn't cover it. And you also, once you stop it, you gain the weight back because 
that's just how medications work. And so that's why people are saying, oh, it's like a blood pressure medication. Like, you know, if you stop taking your blood pressure medication, you'll have high blood pressure again. So it's a really, a really interesting time to be in the landscape right now of obesity and weight loss research, because this new medication is just making accessible weight loss so prominent and almost like giving people no excuse to be fat. Like, oh, well, there's this medication now. Like you could, you could solve all your problems right away. So it's a very interesting time. Yeah. That makes me think actually that I don't think we said what like the kind of biomedical research means when it says obesity or when it says overweight, because that really is just based on cutoffs on the BMI, right? Maybe you could, you could explain that quick. Absolutely. Yeah. So obesity is a measure of 30 or higher and overweight is a measure of 25 to 29.9. And so these measures kind of constitute if you have obesity, which is considered a disease that is a an over amount of adiposity in your body that can lead to other comorbid conditions such as hypertension, diabetes, and things like that. So a lot of these treatments, not only in terms of this medication, but in terms of like being recommended for bariatric surgery or things like that are all based on this one measure. And Other tests are done sometimes to figure out like the true health of somebody, like their glucose levels, their cholesterol, things like that. But more often than not, it's this one measure that is like almost a trigger to recommend and like promote these treatments to someone. Yeah. Yeah. It's just always kind of amazing to me that it's that we've just taken this concept that is so, so, so basic doesn't doesn't bring in just literally any other factors and it's this it's this number that is um so prominently used in all kinds of healthcare contexts absolutely yeah um and it also even branches out into like life insurance policy into like um insurance coverage things like that like the just your BMI can be associated with like you having to pay more for health insurance or not being able to get life insurance. Also things like organ donation uh, are based in BMI and things like that. And so that is also something that I think is interesting. And I also know that it is being researched right now. It hasn't been fully published, but I know through a certain couple of avenues, weight bias in healthcare specifically is being researched and specifically accessibility. So like there are so many things about going to the doctors that are not fit for fat people, even from like rate waiting room chairs are not like able to accommodate for people of all body sizes, which is ridiculous. And it kind of just promotes this like constant shaming of your body size in relation to health. And what was interesting is I, I took a weight related health course this semester and we had two different doctors come in, um, one that was an obesity specialized provider and one that was a bariatric surgeon. And he was talking about how the people that need like bariatric surgery the most that are at like life-threatening weights can't get the surgery because the surgical tools aren't long enough or big enough to give people the surgery. (laughs) 
it, like even things like that like nothing in the medical world is like accommodating even things like the uh mri machines or things like that have sizes that people aren't able to get the care that they need but then are told you need to take better care of yourself and be more healthy however we can't accommodate you and figure out like what's going on so it's a whole double standard um constantly going on and it's very i know that there's research going into it now so i'm excited to see where that goes yeah, that was a question I was going to ask you about, do you feel like there's a relationship between like weight-based or weight loss research and weight-based discrimination? I think you sort of answered it, but if you had any other thoughts. So there is a lot of research already done that has shown and proven weight bias of like medical systems and providers. And that is kind of like a already known like shown thing. However, there isn't really anything being done on like an intervention side, I would say to that. So there is definitely a relationship in the research, but there isn't a lot of like change coming from the results of the research, I would say. But I will also add that like, there's not a lot of research about it. Like there is really important research that shows these results, but there isn't a lot of it. And that is kind of what I am passionate about is like getting more fat positive research into academia because I do a lot of work and every time I try to research something it's like nothing found or articles about obesity interventions or like things like that and I'm like no I don't want to know about that and so I think and I'm hoping that a lot of these more like fat positive pieces of research will kind of be able to help show providers like the real implications of their actions. But I think we still have a really long way to go. Definitely. I was going to ask you, can you tell us a little bit about your own research project, kind of your next step since you're about to graduate? Yeah. Um, So I actually, I have a couple of different research projects going on right now. Um, I kind of mentioned it earlier when I was introducing myself. I'm really, I'm really interested about fat equity, like as a whole in kind of all different realms. Um, but I'm really interested in like healthcare, but I'm also really interested in sexual health. And that's something that I have, I do a lot of work in outside of like fat activism work. I just do a lot of sexual health work. And so my master's project, actually, I'm doing a research project about the intersections of fatness and sexual pleasure and intimacy, which I'm really excited about. And that I'm starting to, I'm waiting on IRB approval, Um, but then I'll be able to do interviews with people about their experiences um, in sexual pleasure and intimacy and how they feel that their fat experience kind of intersects with that. But more kind of related to this work is, and I know we have talked about this a lot, but I'm working on a research proposal to do community based participatory research with the fat community in the Twin Cities to kind of create a safe space where we can kind of just chat and talk about our experiences as fat people, but then also figure out what we actually need and want from doctors and medical systems in terms of care, whether that be things like having accommodating waiting room chairs or asking, like not asking to be weighed right away or only bringing up 
weight-related health if prompted by the patient and things like that. Um, and so I'm hoping that we can kind of collaborate through a community advisory board and create our own curriculum to teach providers on how fat people actually want to be treated at the doctors. And something that I really incorporate into all of my research is this concept that in regards to fatness, especially in academia and in research settings, fat people are talked about, they're not listened to, and their experiences aren't reflected. And there's something, the standpoint theory, have you heard of that before? I have, but please explain it. Yeah. So the standpoint theory kind of says that authority and expertise is rooted in one's personal experience. Um, And I believe that this is really important kind of to all different vulnerable and marginalized groups, because it really just puts forth that we are the owners of our own experiences and we have the authority to do what we want and put forth change with those experiences. Um, And I think that's really powerful and meaningful, especially when talking about discrimination and like oppression and trauma in regards to any group really. But with my fat research, I really try to do all my research and all of my, have all my values lie in the fact that we need to be sharing our own experiences. um, And we kind of need to be the owners of how we want to be treated, how we want the landscape of fat research and fat policy to change. That's so exciting. I can't just see, I can't wait to see how it goes and what you do next. I feel like you're going to have so many different positive impacts out there with what you're working on. Well, it has been so wonderful to talk to you, Claire, and thank you for the time and all of your knowledge and sharing your experiences. I really appreciate it. Yes, thank you, Amanda. Yeah, this was super fun. And I hope that people can just take a mini step in trying to be more open-minded and thinking about their own perceptions and how they can kind of start unlearning those things. So I'm really glad that we got to talk. Um, Thank you. That was Claire Weiss, who just finished her master's in public health degree here at the University of Minnesota. Thanks again, and congratulations, Claire. To take a closer look at the research around obesity and weight loss, we then spoke to Dr. Jennifer Lindy. So I know that you are an associate professor in the School of Public Health in the Epidemiology and Community Health Division. But if you wouldn't mind introducing yourself and just kind of giving a little brief overview of your work, that would be great. Sure. So um, I'm Jennifer Lindy. Um, uh, yeah, I I trained as a clinical psychologist, and I like to tell people I ended up in public health by accident. Um, I was looking for work and um, found a position that involved analyzing data from a range of weight-related health studies. And I had this background in health behavior and psychology, and I thought, well, this looks interesting. So I was fortunate to get the job and even more fortunate that that translated into a faculty position, and I'm still here. So um, that's how I came to this work. I have a little bit of assessment background and a little bit of working with people, and I've been fortunate to bring that into the public health space. Excellent. Yeah, I was just looking through your 
some of your CV and so many publications. And I also noticed on there that you are a Jeopardy champion. (laughs) Yes, yes, I am. Um, I was very, actually very proud to put that on my CV. Yeah. um, I was on the show in January of 21. It's been almost two and a half years now. Um, That was, I think the most fun you can have as an adult. Um, There may be other things I'm sure, but um, it was a blast. I had such a good time. I met the most amazing people. Um, it was, it would have been a great experience anyway, but just kind of shaking up the gloom of the first year of COVID and, you know, being isolated, being home full time, a lot of uncertainty. And then I got to do this really cool thing. So, uh, did a little risk benefit analysis (laughs) before I flew out there, talked to some of my epi colleagues, Um, We all agreed that with reasonable precautions, this was one of those rare once in a lifetime things that I should go do. And it was very, uh, at the time, the studios were operating under really impressive COVID protocols and all kinds of safety precautions and layers of testing and masking. And and, uh, it actually felt like a pretty safe space once I was there and it was uh, all good fun. So, yeah. That's cool. I just had to ask about it. Not that it's related to anything, but you don't see that pop up on a CV very often. So it was kind of fun. Thanks for asking. It's partly why I put it on there. It's it's a nice reminder. Um, And it's an accomplishment. I'm going to put it with the rest of my work accomplishments. It's fun. (laughs) Absolutely. I totally would do the same. Okay, so I'm wondering if you could kind of give us as much as is possible, kind of a summary of how you see the landscape of obesity and weight loss weight loss research right now, which is I I know a big question, but just kind of the most important things for someone to understand if they're sort of new to this area. Sure, sure. Um, so I would say there's been around 40 years or so, give or take, of research in this area, maybe 50, depending on how you want to define it. And at this point, we do have a pretty good sense of the basic techniques that help people lose weight. Um, We're pretty good at packaging and delivering those components. Um, You know, there's a list of things that we could look at and you'd pretty much get expert agreement. Yeah, yeah, these are the things that we would recommend. So um, thinking about portions at meals, Uh, meal planning so that there's structure around that. Um, Things like on the nutrition side, make sure you're getting enough fiber, trying to decrease sugar intake, um, getting regular exercise. So encouraging people to be moderately or vigorously physically active on a regular basis. Um, If you're going through weight loss, tracking your weight so that you know what that number is doing um, as part of the process and not necessarily as a fixation on the number or the scale, but it's a tool. Um, Paying attention to those environmental cues, like things you see around you, as well as your own internal cues that might prompt you being sedentary or eating off the plan that you've set for yourself, or that might encourage you to continue to do those things in ways that work for you. Um, We also know that paying attention to emotional states um, that go along with this process is really important, that this doesn't happen in an emotional vacuum, um, and that it's helpful to understand that and accept some of those feelings um, and, and acknowledge that this is a hard process and that that part is also okay to acknowledge. 
So um, we can put these things together and, and they work pretty well um, to encourage people to lose weight loss with behavioral techniques. Um, on the medical front, um, there have been a lot of recent and really well pu- publicized drug developments, right? So there's um, people have said the landscape for weight loss medications has changed radically in the last five to 10 years. Um, some of these new drugs, a lot of them came out of looking for diabetes medications. So they, um, and it turns out they're also really effective for weight loss. And so this opens really new and interesting questions about what we do with these drugs going forward, right? Like who's getting them? Um, why are they getting to the people who would benefit most from them? And what is that? You know, how do we define that? So that has really changed a lot in the last five years. And, and I think um, it kind of goes hand in hand with these, you know, we've got these behavioral techniques. We know they work reasonably well. We know they're hard to stick to in the long term. Um, and then we've got these drugs that we also know work really well. And, and there's a lot of conversations happening now about what do we do with that information? And, and is there a way to put that together? And how can we sort of put that into, uh, you know, customizing these kinds of plans for people if that's what they want to do? Um, and, um, yeah, so I would say that's kind of where we're at and it's helpful. I think for people to know a little bit of that history, that these are techniques that we've been working on studying for a really long time and with rain, you know, lots of different people, um, at different age ranges and the evidence is fairly consistent that at least in the short term, like let's say six months to a year, these things can be really effective, um, And if people maintain that, they can also continue to be effective. Although that's a big question of how hard that can be to maintain if that's something that you've started doing. Yeah, I think that's helpful. Yeah, some of that is what um, one of the things I talked about with Claire, uh, particularly, you know, medications that are um, that are kind of changing a lot of um, a lot of kind of the dialogue and the conversations that are happening. And one of the things that she mentioned was just that I think she felt that it kind of contributed to this uh, perception or this discussion of obesity as a chronic health condition and being sort of treated that way, even mm-hmm. for if you're a person who your BMI would say that you're obese, but you know, you do all the things that you need to do to be healthy, you, mm-hmm. all of that. So I think that was kind of a question in my mind of um, just sort of the label obesity and just the use of the BMI as, mm-hmm. you know, a complicated yes. metric. Absolutely. I mean, there are a lot of complex stories here. There's a lot going on. Um, you know, it, you can even like, you can get a room full of experts in this area in clinic and in research, and they're going to disagree about all of these things that you've just mentioned, right? Like they're going to disagree about using BMI. They're going to disagree about treating obesity as a chronic condition. Um, they're going to disagree about whether we, you know, we can, um, consider folks with high BMI and no other, like no other metabolic indicators. Are those folks truly healthy? Um, Are they healthy now? What's it going to look like in 20 years? And 
again, like I have, and I've seen these debates for myself between very well-trained, very knowledgeable people who've been working in this area for years. There's not a lot of agreement. And, and I think sometimes that's reflected in sort of how providers treat patients, um, especially around weight. Um, you know, providers don't necessarily have the time or the training um, to counsel in this area, but they see patients and weight is a visible marker. We don't always know it's a marker of health, um, but it's visible. And so, um, you know, we sometimes see providers reacting just to the thing that they see, right? They see someone in a large body, they react to that before they've taken their blood pressure, before they've drawn blood, before they've run any kind of labs. And so that, again, complicates this picture. It makes it harder. You know, it's hard enough for people to access care when they need it. Um, our medical system is difficult. If you want care for some obesity-related condition, you may not get it in a timely manner. You may need care for some other condition and your provider only sees your weight. And it just, again, you know, given how expensive healthcare is in this country, issues with availability of providers, this just makes the whole, again, just more layers of complication. And these folks aren't necessarily tracking the research. You know, they're not necessarily up on best practices for, you know, the debate about BMI or, you know, if someone does want weight loss counseling, what do you do? Who do you refer to? especially when those kinds of questions are outside of their area of expertise. And so again, it's just, we're having this debate up here in, in our sort of ivory towers and at our conferences, and it just, it's not helping anything on the ground, right? Like it's not helping the day-to-day -day experience of people either in large bodies who don't want to talk about weight or lose weight or think about it with their provider or people who do and just don't know where to go. Yeah, absolutely. I think that gap between, yeah, the kind of academic mm -hmm. debates and stuff on the ground, I think is, I think something that I'm, I'm personally interested in, but also I think the uh, sort of the public health review and public health in general. I mean, I think, you know, bridging that gap a little bit. Yeah. Um, do you see a relationship between obesity or weight loss research and diet culture, do you think? You know, that's such a good question. Um, I mean, I feel like just what I know from people who are on the research side of this, we've worked really hard to promote techniques that are effective and safe. So we're not asking people to do risky things or, you know, potentially harmful things or things that don't work if they try them. But the whole time that we've been doing this research, we've been running, and even before this research began, this diet culture existed. And, you know, we have a history of people with like coming up with sort of unique eating plans that are supposed to be the magical cure for everything that's wrong with you or the, you know, magic powder you can shake on your food and it will boost your metabolism. So in my experience, we've, we've always had to spend time during like our sort of packaged weight loss programs talking about these things because people are always going to come in. Well, I heard, you know, my cousin did this and she lost 50 pounds and, and, and what the, this is has changed over the years. You could fill in the blank, but the message is the same. These fads, they come and go they're usually not nutritionally sound or medically logical. They're usually really expensive, like buying 
literal powders and supplements and, you know, magic pills that aren't actually magic, you know, nothing's going to melt away your fat and, you know, make your metabolism the same as a 15 year old. Um, So these things are heavily marketed and the sort of tried and true sound techniques are not, you know, there's nothing exciting about the long, slow, difficult process that we pitch to people. And so we always have at least one session in our weight loss programs where we're like, okay, we're going to talk about all these wacky things that you've heard about and, and get it out there and, and talk about, you know, some of the nutritional science around why it doesn't make any sense or, or, you know, questions about, well, is this something you could sustain? Is this something that is meaningful to you? Would you want to take, you know, this magic powder every day? And what are you actually getting out of it? So we, we fight with that. Um, you know, we, we fight against that. You know, it's one of the, one of the things that, you know, for folks who have tried to lose weight, um, one of the things that we hear over and over again is that they've done this multiple times, right? Like they've tried something and they've regained the weight and they want to try again. And, Part of that, not all of it, but part of that is people trying these things that are risky and not well-tested and not actually reliable um, ways to lose weight. Um, And so we push against that for folks who are interested in this um, and don't know what to do. And it's real easy to find those things on the shelf, right? It's less easy to access sound care in this area. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's something Claire brought up too, is just, yeah, there, there's always that search for sort of the magic bullet and yes. there's, you know, with the exception of now sort of some of these new medications are almost being marketed that way. And, you know, it's, it's kind of early to see if that's true, but uh, yeah, that's always kind of a specter that's out there. It's, what's, what's the the magic here? Um, another thing I wanted to ask about is just how it seems like weight has become so tied to our perceptions of morality mm-hmm. and just, you know, self-control or, you know, all of these things that we think of really as kind of values. And it seems like that also makes things extra complicated. Absolutely. I mean, uh, a large, a large part of why we are the size and shape we are is genetically determined. You know, we are who we are because of our ancestors, right? And everyone's got a range around that, right? Like there are environmental factors that can push on that and, you know, change what, you know, sort of modify our sort of base genetic tendencies, right? And we have, we have some control over that, but not as much, you know, it's not, it's not entirely a hundred percent in our control, right? We also don't have full control over the environments we live in. And that could, that could mean the foods that we have access to when we look around us, that can mean our exposure to trauma, which, you know, raises our cortisol levels and causes us to gain weight. Um, That could mean, you know, having jobs or life pressures that, you know, keep us from being able to fully access health in all dimensions, whether it's weight related or otherwise. And so we come to this with some things that we can't get our hands around. And, and then on top of that, you know, there's, there's discrimination attached to being in a larger body that we haven't really been able to address, you know, in our culture um, and, and others, but, you know, I think especially here in the United States, Um, We have real issues with that. It's so prevalent. And even people who, you know, work in this space aren't immune to it. 
And so we have a long way to go in terms of training people um, to recognize weight-based discrimination, to counteract it when they see it, to work on not engaging in it. And either in research or in practice, I feel really strongly that the conversation about weight should be up to the person who's in the center, right? Like it's not up to me to tell somebody they need to lose weight. It shouldn't be up to their medical doctor either. If they don't want it, that's fine. You know, we need to be more sensitive to people's needs and accommodate them better and um, just need to, to recognize that, you know, it's not just an individual's responsibility. And I think we've started to move like things again are starting to shift in terms of focusing on the effects of weight stigma on health and understanding what that really means and doing things like incorporating acceptance-based approaches to working with people so that, you know, understanding that they're, they're facing a lot of challenges. This isn't something easy. If people want to change, you know, something about their activity habit, something about their eating, we can do that while also addressing the fact that, you know, they're being exposed to stigma and it might come from self-talk that could very well be internal. And, you know, most of us have something that our little internal little voice says isn't perfect about ourselves. Um, And we also, especially um, with, with weight, again, as I said, because it's visible, there's a lot of external stigma that, that people are exposed to. And so, you know, sometimes people want to lose weight and they want to manage that at the same time, right? And that's okay. That's their choice. Um, So we can work on helping them enhance their well-being and help them learn techniques to buffer against that stigma, whether it's the voice in their heads or the external experience that they have. And, you know, if we can counteract some of that, hopefully we can help them improve health. And a lot of these approaches don't necessarily focus on weight. They acknowledge that weight stigma is a real thing and focus on health enhancing techniques to buffer against stress and improve health. And maybe weight change happens, but maybe it doesn't. And maybe people just feel healthier. They've, you know, adapted, you know, maybe they've gone back to that um, physical activity that they always loved as a kid and they feel better, you know, things that we can do to, you know, help people. And and let them decide whether that focus is going to be on weight or not. Another area of your research I wanted to ask about is kind of the uh, weight issues around parent and child relationships. And yeah, and, you know, eating habits, obviously being, you know, very integrated with family. And I just love to hear uh, your thoughts about how um, that can kind of influence that parent-child relationship. Yeah, absolutely. So I come at it from the side of the parents. I mostly work with adults. Um, And so I think about it and just from the work I've done and what I've learned along the way, you know, it's sort of obvious parents control the environment of their kids, at least through early adolescence, right? Like we could, we could debate at what age the kids start to sort of pull away from that. But from birth until Eh, let's say the first 12 years, parents are really in control of what kids are exposed to. And so if we think about things like the nutrition and activity environment for kids, parents are driving that for at least that first 10 to 12 years. And so that gives us a lot of opportunities to support parents in making that environment as healthy as possible for their families. And so this could mean addressing the kinds of foods they have in the home, um, how they approach family meals, like are they sitting down with a family needing dinner together or is everyone on their own screens like off in a corner? 
uh, do they play together? So are they active together as a family? Or again, are they all on their screens? Are they, you know, and then most importantly, I think, is how they talk to their kids about weight and size and shape. And, you know, are they, do they say disparaging things about themselves and their own bodies in front of their kids? I mean, kids pick that stuff up and they remember it more than the parents remember having said it. Um, Do they comment on their kids' weight and shape? Do they control food for their kids in a way that makes the kids like, like one of the examples is, you know, if they tell them the snacks are forbidden and and tell them, oh, those are bad. You can't have those. You know, what do kids think? Oh, kids think, oh, I want that. That's That seems really attractive now, right? So how do they treat food and, and activity and health in their house? You know, we know that the messages kids hear from their parents, and those are internalized, like kids hear them. And this can lead to negative effects on their body image or unhealthy behaviors down the road. So the relationship that parents have to food is transmitted really effectively to their kids. The relation that parents have to their bodies is transmitted. Kids kids soak that up. And so if we can focus on families being healthy in many different dimensions, you know, engaging with each other socially, um, being active together, um, cooking together as a way to learn more about food. And if we can help support families in their environments too, so that they have access to nutritious food. They have access to safe place space for their kids. Um, They can afford those things. You know, maybe we can also work on policy that, that enhance those opportunities for families. So that could be about neighborhoods um, and, you know, structuring neighborhoods in ways that enhance health. And then for kids, that could mean thinking about what goes on in schools. And and we've seen some action on that over the years with like school lunch programs and um, activity, you know, kids activity programs. And if we can put those things into the environment, that gives everyone sort of a better chance at health in those areas um, and ideally meets their social needs, their economic needs and their cultural needs in the process. Along those same lines, you kind of just talked about this, but I'm just trying to get an idea of sort of the trends of sort of more community engaged research in this area. So sort of what work needs to be done if you had, you know, sort of a call to action or people who are interested in doing or funding research in this area. What kind of things would you advocate for aside from what you already mentioned? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I had a really interesting conversation with a colleague about this recently before you and I talked about doing this. Um, And so we were talking about what obesity research looks like these days. And there seems to be a split happening, which I think is a good thing. So if you're doing community engaged, community partnered work, um, you should, I mean, just generally, you should be taking cues from your community partners. And so what we're hearing is that communities don't want to talk about obesity and weight loss. They want to talk about nutrition. They want to talk about playgrounds. They want to talk about building opportunities for accessing health in this space. And so we can do that. We can work with communities on what's that going to look like for you? What would optimal nutrition look like for your community? What, What do you need to see to realize that? And then in the research space, we can keep working on our things, right? Like we can try to work on best practices. And 
since it's pretty well established that we know these tools and tricks that work for people, um, it's starting a trend toward working on optimizing the programs that we have. And so this could help us package those programs for delivery to a wider range of settings where guidance on nutrition and activity and weight-related health are wanted um, and making sure those programs are affordable and accessible for everyone who wants access. And so we're seeing these sort of cost analyses, you know, what is, what is the, you know, meeting on the graph of optimal costs with optimal outcomes and how can we maximize that? And, you know, what if you had a thousand dollars per person to spend, what would that program look like? What if you only had 50? And so people are working on trying to answer that question of like, what, what, what do we keep? What do we leave behind? What is still going to be effective and affordable. And so we could tailor that in all kinds of ways to meet people's needs. That's so interesting. Yeah, I'm glad that that it's going in different directions rather than just kind of focused on, you know, obesity kind of in a lab separated from people. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's and, and I've seen this in my own work, I've done some really neat community engaged projects where they're like, we have a nutrition question, or we want to build a program that helps folks. Here's an example um, of a program where this community partner came to me and um, the, they primarily work with recent immigrants who are new to our food system. And so they wanted to do something that had nothing to do with weight. It had everything to do with like, what could we, what could we do to build this program to help them understand accessing food in this new environment and, you know, share with each other and learn some new tricks and, and do some cooking demonstrations and and get them interested in in um, sort of meeting their nutritional and you know food related needs in this new space, this unfamiliar space. And again, nothing to do with weight, but everything to do with um, you know navigating the food environment, working with people, helping them meet their needs, and so. I could do a research project on that too, but like, I don't, you know, I don't necessarily need to work with the community and say, okay, let's talk obesity um, unless they want to, but usually they want to talk about other things. And so we are seeing this happening at the research funding level now, which I, yeah, I absolutely think it's a good direction is we have to understand the needs of the people that we work with. And, you know, we can do our tinkering in our, in our labs, right? Like we can continue to do that. But you have to wear, I think of it as wearing a different hat, but you have to wear a different hat for those community partners. Yeah, that's really exciting work. Well, I'm sure we could talk about this for a long time, but is there anything else that you feel like it's important to add or want people to know about? Um, Yeah, I no, I think this has been a great conversation. Um, I, I hope it's been helpful. I I guess I could add, you know, I, I stay in this space because I know that there are still people who are interested in talking about losing weight and, you know, it's good to make sure that there are safe, effective methods to help them in ways that don't stigmatize them or blame them for who they are. And if they don't want that, that's also fine. with us 
podcast again, now that we've listened to the two interviews, did they meet your expectations? Definitely. I thought Claire was was a great person to speak to a lot of the topics, but especially introducing that sort of accessible introductory like history and terminology to fat activism. I thought that was really great. And I also appreciated a lot of hearing Dr. Lindy's perspective as well. They definitely reinforced what I had as my call to action previously, which was talking about trying to avoid bringing up or making comments about people's body just as a topic of conversation. Hearing both of them talk definitely made me want to continue along with that practice. People's health looking different from each other doesn't mean that you shouldn't be treated with dignity. Wow. You're right. Dignity. Thank you again so much, Diane, for sharing your thoughts and this topic with us and our listeners. Thank you to the listeners for tuning in this month to the podcast. If you ever have any suggestions for topics, please fill out the topic survey. Additionally, we will be listing links to the resources Claire spoke about in her interview. We value your time. We value your opinions. And we hope that everyone just stays safe. We'll see you next month on the Perspectives Podcast.